Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City. Today on the podcast, we're going to hear from Jen Kenna, a veteran public lands manager on the Bureau of Land Management's proposed conservation leasing rule. But before we get to that, let's do the news. We talked about the historic Chaco Canyon mineral withdrawal last time, but since then there's been some pushback from members of the Navajo Nation who own the rights to lands around Chaco. They protested Interior Secretary Deb Holland's visit to Chaco over the weekend to celebrate the creation of the 10-mile buffer zone. One thing that I want to note here is that the Navajo Alatis retain the right to lease their parcels for oil and gas drilling. The mineral withdrawal only affects federally owned lands. The All Pueblo Council of Governors, which has advocated for the buffer zone for years, put out a statement to that effect on Monday. It reads, Claims made by protesters and others regarding the origins and effects of the withdrawal are not true. The Navajo Nation helped design and advocate for the 10-mile withdrawal at the request of its people, and the withdrawal protects Navajo and Alati development rights. In other news, the House Natural Resources Committee is holding a hearing on Thursday morning on a bill that would require the Bureau of Land Management to withdraw its proposed public lands conservation rule. Now, that's the rule we are about to talk about here in this episode with former BLMer Jim Kenna. Now, this is not a great bill, obviously. It was filed by Congressman John Curtis of Utah. This proposed BLM rule, which is the subject of today's episode, would put conservation on equal footing with other uses of public lands like mining and drilling and grazing, would not make conservation a better or more important use than all those other multiple uses. And as you're about to hear, this rule is really about adding tools to the toolbox that land managers use, not taking tools or flexibility away from them. Now, BLM's Deputy Director of Policy and Programs is Nada Culver. She's a former guest on this podcast, and she is set to testify at the hearing on Thursday in defense of this rule. It should be fascinating to watch, and it should bring a whole lot more clarity as to what this rule will and won't do. Now, one last note. The public comment period for this proposed rule closes next Tuesday, June 20th. There's a link in the show notes if you want to weigh in. The big takeaway, I think, is that this is how the sausage gets made. Agencies propose a policy change, the public and industry and land users all get to weigh in, and what comes out the other end is hopefully better for it. So, take a listen to Jim's thoughts here, and then go have your say. Our guest today spent more than 40 years working for America's public lands, most of it with the Bureau of Land Management and the Interior Department. James Kenna wore a number of hats over his decades of public service, including a stint as the California State Director at the BLM. That gave him a front-row seat to land management decisions that would help shape America's energy future. And now, he is weighing in on one of the most important proposals to come from the Biden administration, the proposed public lands rule that would put conservation on equal footing with mining, drilling, grazing, and other uses of American lands. Jim Kenna, welcome to the podcast. Pleased to be here. So, first off, give us the Notes version of your career. You worked across, I believe, it was seven administrations? Oh, yeah. And probably even more important, I started as the lowest rung on the ladder as a firefighter in Arizona in the early 1970s. So that puts a little bit of a perspective on it. I also spent along the way about 15 years uh, in 
field field office management. Um, so I have a very interesting uh, sort of cross section in the 40 years of career, uh, clear up to the senior executive level, as you mentioned, uh, retiring out as the state director of California, and before that, the state director in Arizona. Um, but uh, I'm currently in Oregon, and um, probably because kids and grandkids are close, and uh, the, uh, but I also spent some time in Oregon as the associate state director. So I, I've got, I think, a pretty good cross section of the agency. And, and I came in right behind the passage of the Federal Land Policy and Management Act. There was a whole bunch of hiring right after that law passed. And so I watched during my career the implementation of that law. So, Jim, what's your read on this proposed public lands rule? What do you think it's trying to accomplish? Well, you know, I guess for a a guy who spent as much time as I did doing this, um, what's striking to me when I read through the rule is how closely and, and carefully it adheres to what's in the law itself. Um, that it's not, in spite of what all I've read, the conspiracy theories and things that are out there, um, this is really a framework for doing what has been in the business line of the Bureau of Land Management for a long time. Uh, Restoration work and conservation work is, is critical to sustaining public lands over the long haul. To, it's it's sort of what we hand off to the next generation when we're done, and I I think this is a, a really carefully written rule in my reading, uh, in that they're trying to be pragmatic, and yet stay very very close to the congressional direction that was provided. So, take us back then into your career because I think one of the the examples that folks cite a lot uh, in the public lands rule of similar success stories is the DRECP, the Desert Renewable Energy and Conservation Plan, which uh, is in place right now in California. You were at BLM when the DRECP was negotiated and, and put in place. How did that process play out and how do you see that being a, a lesson or an opportunity as far as this public lands rule goes? Well, probably the first thing to do is to give people a sense of the environment where the plan was put together. I mean, you're talking about a landscape of 22 and a half million acres, of which 10.8 roughly million acres are administered by the Bureau of Land Management. But you also have um, every single one of the branches of the Defense Department has a military training unit in the California desert. You have three national parks, you have seven counties, you have uh, innumerable cities, uh, but you also have in the neighborhood of 30 to 35 sensitive or uh, listed species. Um, So it's, it's complex biologically, it's complex socially, it's complex politically, uh, and it took literally years, half a dozen years, to really put the whole thing together. But what is, I think, beautiful about it is it created a framework 
for managing all of those demands and uses in a very complex setting for all levels of government. It was coordinated with the counties. It was coordinated with the tribes. It was coordinated with the state. Multiple state agencies were involved. Uh, it, the Department of Defense had, a, had its own advisory group. We met clear back in the Pentagon over this plan. It was very, very, very carefully designed. So if you look at what it did, it found a footprint for uh, 20,000 megawatts of power to feed over 20 million people in Southern California. At the same time, it found a way to respect the uh, fact that you're in the middle of a national conservation area designated since 1976. The message in that, I think, should be you can get it done. In the most complex settings, you can uh, take the multiple use concept and sustained yield concepts, and you can make it happen on the ground, and you can make it happen in a way that is compatible for all levels and interests. Um, Jim, I want to ask you to back up here and um, go back to the rule and tell us, tell us what you think the rule does or what it um, is intending to do? Well, it, it really goes back to roots for the Bureau of Land Management, in my view. If you, if you uh, look at the, the law itself, what we call the Organic Act, that, that basically frames how the Bureau of Land Management should do its work, um, it very clearly lays out that conservation is a will-do, will-provide kind of mandate to the Bureau of Land Management. But it also says that you have to allow for all of these other domestic needs. Uh, and it uses those words, domestic needs. Um, and so in the process of doing that, um, in the in around the 1980-ish, we started to put the the a lot of the policy more nitty-gritty policy framework together, the the manuals and the instruction memos and the this and that. Well, since that time, we have decades of experience to look back at and say, you know, what could we have done differently? What could we have done better? Where have we been consistent with? what the law is asking us to do, where have we been consistent across different parts of the country. We can look at all of that and we can revisit some of that framework and try and make some corrections. So I think there are some pieces in the rule that are essentially are uh, they're, uh, going back in and tweaking and making a correction to solve inconsistencies that we can see in the record that we have. In other cases, I think it's basically providing a, a deeper level of detail. Uh, and an example would be the conservation leasing piece. The general leasing authority has been in the law since day one. So it's not a new authority. That, that's just part of FLIPMA. Just like it is for permitting or other stuff. Uh, what is different here is that 
you're saying, okay, if you're going to do it for a conservation purpose, and in honesty, not a lot of that has happened in the past, some, but not a lot. Um, if you're going to do authorizations for this conservation purpose, here's some framework on how you would do that. Uh, if you contrast that with the area of critical environmental concern part of the rule, that's a place where we were going back and cleaning up inconsistency, I think, and, and regrounding with the language that's actually in the law about what should happen. In the conservation leasing part of it, it's giving some new tools. And there's, there's a mitigation part of it where you're saying, okay, would a lease be helpful in certain circumstances to facilitate a, a new solar field? You're going to lose all that habitat out in the solar field. What uh, We can't mitigate it all locally. What, what could we do? Is there an area we could go with that we could help the species that are going to be affected by the new solar field have a place to go and to live and to do, uh, you know, make new generations of whatever the species is? Jim, quick follow-up there. You mentioned that BLM has done conservation leasing before. Did I get? Did I hear that right? Well, you know, this is sort of a, and this is a, a nerdy argument that sometimes happens between retirees as well. But, uh, you know, what what are the kinds of authorizations that the Bureau of Land Management does? If you go to Title III in the law, and I have this dog-eared copy of the Federal Land Policy and Management Act that I always kept by my desk when I was working, and I still have it here in my study at home. So, it, it, and it's just kind of a dog-eared kind of a thing, but rabbit trail. Um, so there are all kinds of authorizations, and they're designed to do different things. A, a lease is is uh, conveys a bundle of rights to do a certain amount of things or certain things for a period of time. Uh, but we also have a shorter term authorizations like permits. You could have things like uh, an easement or even a license. And those are all provided for in the law. And so if you look at where leasing has been applied in the, the history of public lands, um, you can go all the way back to the 1920s for minerals, uh, to the 1926 for public purposes, uh, for, you know, a lot of state parks sit on a Recreation and Public um, Purposes Act lease. So to my thinking, um, the authorization should fit the, the need. What works in that local spot where you're trying to do a specific thing. Uh, and what this does with, if you're going to go, the rule does, if you're going to go to a lease, here's how you do it. But, and this will be in my comments back to the agency, but don't change the authority sort of thought process out on the field level. If it makes more sense to do it as a permit, do it as a permit. If it makes more sense to do it in an agreement, like a Sykes Act agreement with uh, the state wildlife agency, do it in the Sykes Act agreement with the state agency. I think it's really important to not get so preoccupied with a particular tool, but to think more about how do we make sure and authorize the, the action that needs to happen from a conservation standpoint. And it could be a, a wildlife connection underneath an interstate highway. It could be 
all kinds of different things. But I think the leasing part of it, we have a lot of experience with, whether you'd call this or that lease a conservation lease in our history, is probably not really very important. I want to now get into some examples and how this proposed rule affects what BLM already does. And really, I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road or I guess where the, the hoof hits the, the pasture. Uh, grazing. Uh, at the public meeting in Denver a couple weeks ago that the BLM held to talk about this room, there were a lot of ranchers there who were very concerned that this rule was going to impact them, was going to limit their ability to have their livelihoods and, and run cattle on public lands. What is your take on how this rule, and in particular conservation leasing, because there was a lot of hand-wringing over that, how does this impact grazing? Well, probably the short answer in, in any specific circumstances is it really doesn't. Um, and the reason I would say that is, is not that their concerns aren't valid. Uh, it's fine for them to be, I mean, you're talking about, um, in many cases, multi-generational family ranches. Uh, they're very vested in what they're doing and they're, they're, they're coming to you and saying, we're concerned. We need to listen to that. That, to me, makes sense. But if you look at the legal foundations around what happens with public land grazing uh, since the time of the Taylor Grazing Act in the 1930s, reaffirmed again in, in uh, 1976, um, that, that is all pretty much in place. You have a very mature set of regulations. You have a very mature set of processes. Um, and I don't see any of that as changing. What, it, what the rule does do is it says we need to be paying attention to the conservation side of what's going on out there. Um, and in many cases, I think you can find public land ranchers that have stepped up to that challenge. Um, there are certainly places in the country where partnerships have been part of delivering on conservation outcomes, and we should we should celebrate that. Um, but we also need to be willing to be honest about where the data tells us things aren't going in a good direction. And we need to be willing to go think about, well, what should we be doing differently to make that better? So uh, to say that it's directly related to the rulemaking, I think is probably not accurate, but, to say that there are issues out there that need attention, that's fair. Um, Jim, you mentioned how this rule could be used in the case of a solar development, for example, to sort of offset those impacts, <clears throat> um, something that's known as compensatory mitigation, I believe. What are some other examples, um, some real world examples of how land managers could use this rule? Or sorry, I should say should use could use conservation leasing since that's really the part that I'm asking about here. Okay, well let's talk about and my prior comment I'd like to emphasize again is uh, use leasing where leasing makes sense. If there's another vehicle like attaching it to a right of way or to uh, uh, to doing some short term permitting thing, um, use that if it fits better. 
Um, but to, to answer, to get at your question, there are some things that uh, might be well suited to a conservation lease. Um, and generally, I, I would think that they would be things that would be in, involved with some kind of a facility. Uh, envision for a, a moment, uh, well, there are examples out there that you can go to that already exist. Um, Clark County in Nevada is well known for its tortoise fencing. Um, they literally put a lot of effort into tortoise fencing. I think most of that was probably attached to uh, Nevada Department of Transportation right-of-way authorizations. Um, but the whole concept of tortoise fencing is that you have a depression in the population where you have almost what they call dead zones that parallel the highway because the population eventually goes out. And if you put tortoise fences in, the tortoises don't get out onto the highway and the tortoises uh, do much better and you start to regain population in those areas. Well, let's say you have an, another setting where it's county roads or where you don't have a right-of-way option to attach the tortoise fencing to. You could put that under a lease um, and you could get tortoise fencing and you could see improvements in tortoise populations as a direct result of a lease, but you want would want the tortoise fences to be maintained and you would want them to be able to persist for long term. So you would want some sort of term on it that made sense in that regard. And, and holds the leaseholder then accountable for that maintenance. Exactly. And you would, you would be able to do that with that kind of an authorization. Um, but it could be, it could be, a wildlife overpass. It could be that um, some third party wants to modify an, uh, a highway underpass. Uh, the state doesn't want to pay for it. Are they willing to have a separate leasehold uh, on around that uh, underpass so that you can raise it up, which would be expensive. I mean, you'd have to raise a lot of money. You'd have to raise it uh, to raise it up to a level that would allow bighorn sheep passage because they won't pass under anything that goes that's very low. So there are lots of things you could do, but you could take this into. Um, there's an area right here in southern Oregon. There's a group called the uh, Lumakasi, I think is what they're called. It's a it's a um, uh, Hopi word, I think, that has to do with something along the lines of restoration. But anyway, they hire young people to go out and do projects in the woods here and give them training on stuff like that. What if you had a watershed um, adjacent to one of the towns or not, where you said, uh, we need, we've got a lot of uh, drainages here that are, have been oversimplified over time. They've lost the woody material down in the creek. We're not seeing the salmon numbers. Uh, we'd like to go in and do a restoration project across the whole entire watershed. Well, that would take years. So what would you want to do? Could you put it under a lease and they would bring in the crews and do the fish restoration in those those places? And you could account how much, you know, what got done in year one, year two, year three, and so on. 
um, that might make a lot of sense to do under a lease. And if you you can conjure up any number of examples that would fit this scenario, um, and what I did or I found really interesting is I read the little bits that they have about the restoration landscapes that are out there now that are getting current funding. Well, there's all kinds of clues there. They tell you, you know, what the conservation issue is in the general area and something about what the potential is for the area, whether it's fish uh, like salmon or grayling or, or whether it's wildlife connectivity corridors or whether it's, you know, whatever the, it's an invasives problem, it's a, like in the Snake River Plain, the uh, cheatgrass fire cycle problems. Um, you can think of things you could put a conservation lease around that would be a multi-year effort um, that you could track and make accountable the work that was done. Hmm. So I want to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. What you're saying, it sounds like is this, <clears throat> this tool is maybe already in the BLM's box toolbox or, um, and this rule is just sort of improving that tool and making it easier to use, or is this adding a new tool to the toolbox? Well, the leasing tool is already in the box. Um, so that, that, that isn't a question. What, what I think is, is innovative here is um, you're taking a, a different purpose, uh, conservation, and putting some detail around it, saying this is some of the stuff you could do to make that happen. Um, and it would still go through all the public processes. You know, if you had a lease you were going to offer, You'd still do the National Environmental Policy Act work on it. You still have public participation. So you'd need to have a public purpose involved. Um, what is the restoration purpose that's going to happen under this lease proposal? And that that would be disclosed. And that's where all these uh, conspiracy theory things about Russian oligarchs lining right. up the restoration project. <laughs> So China, yeah. That's why they are so silly. Um, they they just would never happen. A couple of weeks ago at the meeting here in Denver, I asked uh, three different BLM employees independently what part of this rule excited them the most or or wasn't getting enough attention. And remarkably, they all gave me the same answer, which is the focus on data collection and measuring land health. I wonder, is there a part of this rule that you are similarly excited about or you think is not getting enough attention that has the potential to really be transformative or significantly improve the way land managers do their jobs? What an interesting answer. You know, if I were to predict what kind of answer you would get from people that are doing the hands-on work, that would be it. Okay. And let me give you my my reason for that is it is one of the hardest things to carve out time to get done in a field office mm. because it's not glamorous. There's nothing. Um, and, and when you go to talk to members of Congress and so on uh, to say, oh, we couldn't get all of our monitoring done, you'll get nothing but a yawn. 
Um, so, it, but the knowledge of what is going on and the rigor and discipline to actually maintain it, keep it up, look at it, incorporate it into your plans, uh, have some accountability loops so you're looking at that stuff on a regular basis. That's going to be appealing to people who are, that's where their root concern, that's why they came to work, is they really care about, you know, what the health of that land out there is and where it's going. And so it's really understandable to me that they could, you would get a lot of passion around that answer. And I'm a 40-year government guy, so I can get kind of excited about that. But I understand how for other folks, it may not seem as as attractive. I don't, I don't know what else to say. I want to close by asking you to pull out your crystal ball. Look down the road five or ten years. Uh, does this rule have the potential to be a model either for other agencies, maybe the, the Forest Service, or to impact how BLM works with other agencies and other governments at the at the state or local or tribal level. What what does success look like in in a decade or so? I do think it has a, a huge potential. I, I think it's actually a very well written rule. There are a few details I might quibble about but it's very well done. Conservation in general is a participative sport. If you look at where it's been done well, anywhere in the country, I don't care where you look, uh, you will find partnerships. And I mean partnerships among agencies with, and the DRECP, we had a, a, a senior board of four executives, two state executives and two federal executives working under an agreement between the governor and the secretary of interior across multiple secretaries of interior and multiple governors. Uh, and underneath that, there was a whole structure of, we had wildlife groups that were blended between fish and wildlife service and the Bureau of land management. And we had park service people that participated and we had university people that were deeply embedded. If, if you really want to get it done well, you need to be really committed to making conservation a, a participative sport. Um, uh, you know, and sometimes it'll do things for you that you can't even imagine. When we were doing the DRECP, because we were working with the California Energy Commission, we could have a technical team that was uh, composed of transmission engineers to look at the connection between where we were putting development areas for solar and the grid. And we could technically evaluate that stuff. Mm -hmm. And just like we could technically evaluate against the defense installation missions because we had access to the Department of Defense group with that data. And some of it, frankly, is classified. Sure. <laughs> So if you don't get partnered up, there are things you won't know. Uh, and, and that's true when you get into the biological realm, soils, um, and when you get into the social realm. You want to know what a county is thinking. You got to know what's important to them. You got to know what they're trying to permit in terms of activities if you want to make 
what the Bureau of Land Management does fit together with what they're doing. So uh, I guess I see a world where that becomes amped up, the community involvement in the future of public lands gets uh, more more in, sophisticated, more uh, engaged than it ever has been before. Jim, um, is there anything else that you think people should know about this rule um, or any tips you might have for folks who want to learn more about the rule? Oh, I, I think there, there are good sources. I mean, I, I'm on... Uh, since I retired, I've been on the board for the Conservation Lands Foundation. They have a page where they can connect you to the rule. The Bureau of Land Management has some really nice tools out there. There's a, a GIS tool that's out there that you can go look at the restoration landscapes that I mentioned. That if you want to sort of dive into that side of it about what, what's going on in a particular region. Um, the, but the rule itself uh you know, you have to, I've read a lot of rules and I, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask about uh, where to go to read the best insight on a given rule. I kind of do that for myself. Great. Well, thank you. Those are good sources and we'll link to those in our show notes today. Well, we're going to leave it there. James Kenna, a 40 plus year career, among many other things, the California State Director at the Bureau of Land Management, also a firefighter and associate state director and all sorts of other things that I've lost the titles of right now. Uh, but Jim, we really appreciate your insight uh, and your time today. Well, it's been fun to talk about. So I appreciate your interest. In good news this week, a federal judge has withdrawn approval for a phosphate mine in southeastern Idaho. The judge found that federal land managers under Trump didn't properly consider the mine's impact on sage grouse. The judge went so far as to also vacate the environmental analysis of the project, sending the project back to square one. Now, the reason this is good news is that it shows our environmental laws are working. The judge's decision acknowledges the importance of completing a comprehensive environmental review for projects on federal land. And it helps ensure that if the mine goes forward, it does so in an environmentally responsible way. Well, that's all for today, folks. If you want to reach us with feedback, you can email podcast at westernpriorities.org. And be sure to go follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you get your social media. If we are not on your platform of choice, let us know. You know, Blue Sky, Mastodon, all sorts of options coming up. Maybe we'll bring back MySpace. <laughs> Thanks again to Jim Kenna for sharing his expertise with us today. Don't forget you can weigh in on the proposed public lands rule through next Tuesday. And that link is in the show notes. And finally, thank you for listening to The Landscape.